Welcome to TalkCast, episode 53, for an unusual episode where, once again, I'm deviating a little from the usual beginning of Infinity series. And for this one, first, a disclaimer. I am not a professional historian. I'm not even an amateur historian, to be honest. But I will be making a lot of claims about what went on in history. So just consider what I say to be one perspective, one narrative. There's going to be others. Let's get into the episode. So I've called this Understanding Universality. It's about what universality is and why it's important. The pantheon of Greek gods seem, in a sense, to be an arbitrary collection of entities evolving out of the worship of even more ancient animistic spirits. These gods, the Greek gods, were not universal. Their powers were restricted to narrow domains like the god of love or the god of thunder or the god of fertility. Then someone, perhaps it was the early people of Israel, the Jews, or perhaps it might have been the Christians, I don't want to get into a theological debate on this point, made a jump to religious universality of a kind. They created a god that contained within it the powers of all the other gods. This new god was omni, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. In short, it was a universal god. Everywhere, capable of everything, a god with reach into everything. Jumps to universality in religion continued. Christians later on did not make it particularly difficult for anyone to convert to Christianity. The early saints decided that not only Jews, but anyone at all could be baptised and brought into the religion. Indeed, in a sense, one story might be told that this gave birth to Catholicism. Literally, that means universality or the universal church. Universal because, more or less, anyone with relative ease could become Catholic. One did not need to be born into the religion. One did not need to be from any particular social class or an already existing member of some other approved faith. But there were things to do, so to speak. One needed to go through the act of baptism, then Holy Communion and ultimately confirmation. One had to participate in the sacraments in order to be a fully paid up member of the tribe. The Islamic religion took this a step further. Anyone could convert without so much as a ceremony. Repeating a single sentence before a couple of witnesses would do it. Now, this is not going to be a podcast about religion. I'm just using those examples for illustrative purposes. It's a podcast about universality. I've already made a podcast which went for almost an hour about universality. It's a breakdown of chapter 6 from the beginning of infinity, and that chapter is titled, indeed, The Jump to Universality. Now, having been engaged in this project of understanding the ideas in the beginning of infinity in a public way, a very public way for a few years now, it becomes clear which aspects of the book seem to me to be more or less well understood. And chapter six, it would seem to me, is a particularly underappreciated chapter. The whole concept of universality is at once simple, yet subtle to understand. In my words, it's just all about reach. But then that concept of reach is a technical term as used in the worldview presented in the beginning of infinity. So let's start with reach and with those Greek gods again. So many might know that Aphrodite, for example, is the Greek god of love. Her domain, her responsibilities, if you like, extend across love and beauty and fertility. Anything to do with those things, that's her. 
she had reach within that restricted domain. She had next to nothing to do with war, for example. That, of course, was the domain of Ares, the Greek god of courage and conflict. He had reach across those areas, anything to do with battles and the need to be brave. That's Ares. But the air itself and the heaven above, that's the domain of Zeus, the king of the gods. But even his reach was limited to those arenas. He did not get involved in, for example, the oceans or earthquakes, which was the domain of Poseidon, for Poseidon could reach into any part of the seas and the oceans. But the point here is that none of those gods could do everything. They had reach, more than a mere mortal, you know, for example, a person playing at the seaside could make ripples in the water, but their reach in this regard was limited by their physical strength. Poseidon presumably could make waves as big as he liked, according to Greek mythology. But no Greek god was omnipotent. They, broadly speaking, lacked the powers of the others. On the other hand, the Christian god is defined as having infinite reach in all domains. That god, sometimes called Yahweh or Jehovah, can, it is said, literally do anything. In other words, that god has infinite reach. And what does that mean? That god is universal. Now let's put religion aside and consider science. Science, and in particular, but not exclusively, the physical sciences, have for a long time been concerned about finding laws that apply everywhere for all time. These are the laws of physics. Newton's law of gravitation is sometimes called the universal law of gravitation. It applies everywhere at all times. Once it was discovered by Newton working in Woolsthorpe Manor in Grantham, Lincolnshire, England, that law suddenly reached out from his desk to the rest of the universe. That must have been a remarkable discovery and a remarkable feeling for him. Perhaps he didn't think of it in those terms precisely, or perhaps he did. I kind of guess that he did. Because when he first understood that law, he would have understood that other planets, as well as objects on other planets, obeyed his law. His imagination would have stretched to its cosmological limits, given what he understood about cosmology at the time. Actually, we know Newton thought of a spatially infinite universe because without it, his law seemed to suggest everything would have collapsed upon itself with all the objects in the universe gravitationally attracted one to another and being pulled together towards the centre of whatever the universe was in his theory. To quote the great man himself, Newton said that if the starry heavens were of finite extent, they would fall down to the middle and there compose one great spherical mass. Yet he avoided calculating the time for gravitational collapse. For more on this, see the article linked to in the description below. So Newton got, understood, universality of a kind, a law that applied everywhere at all times. Now in chemistry, we have something analogous. The Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, the prime originator of the modern periodic table, seemed to understand a certain kind of universality. He understood that all matter must have been made of the elements. And more than this, that these elements had to obey certain arithmetic rules. He was so confident of this, he even predicted the properties of elements yet to be discovered. And when another chemist, Italian Stanislo Cannizzaro discovered uranium and claimed it had an atomic weight of 120, which he found empirically, which is to say experimentally. Mendeleev was so confident that he, Cannizzaro, was wrong based purely upon he, Mendeleev's understanding of the periodic table, that he, Mendeleev, published a paper saying so. And Mendeleev was correct. His periodic table and the rules of periodicity, he found, had reach 
They had reach even into the laboratories of experimental chemists in Italy. And of course, like Newton's law of gravity, reach to the rest of the universe. I think I've belaboured the point enough. But we can't leave science without mentioning Darwin. The theory of evolution by natural selection is, of course, universal as well. We know of no other mechanism whereby complex organisms can come into existence. So that theory is universal for life in the universe. I'd like to think that Darwin thought that as well, that if there were alien life on distant planets, then they too, that life, must obey the biological law or principle that is evolution by natural selection. All life must evolve via that only known mechanism. Now, we've talked a little about reach and about universality. Let's now talk about jumps to universality. In chapter 6 of The Beginning of Infinity, David Deutsch talks about writing systems. The earliest ones David refers to as pictograms. Pictograms, interestingly enough, aren't quite like hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics, in a sense, allow almost anything to be expressed. But pictograms only have symbols for a certain finite class of objects. In other words, the pictograms were in one-to-one -one correspondence with a certain list of objects or concepts. So a symbol like an arrow might mean tree, and a symbol that is a circle might mean sun. Such a system has a very little reach. It has reach precisely to those objects that the people who write and understand the symbols can remember or articulate. The number of possible things that can be expressed in such a system is finite. So much for that. We can improve the reach by adding more and more symbols, but each time a new discovery was made, we'd need a whole new symbol. One would expect the complexity of the pictures would increase without limit. Such a system would become unwieldy for normal communication very quickly. One imagines, uh, indeed we know, the spoken language existed well before the written. People can just invent new words, new combinations of sounds, but for the written language to have infinite reach, there would need to be a way to capture parts of words phonetically. The reason for this is that we cannot make an infinite number of discrete sounds. We can make quite a lot, but the number of sounds a human can make in, say, a two-second period is not only finite, it's very limited indeed. So if you have an alphabet instead of a pictograph, which is to say a symbol that corresponds not one-to-one -one with an object, but rather one-to-one -one with a sound, then you can start putting the sounds or the symbols, the letters representing them, into an infinitely variable number of combinations. Suddenly, with an alphabet, you have infinite reach. You have, in other words, universality. If the thing can be said, expressed vocally, then it can be written. For more on that, see the first few pages of chapter 6 of The Beginning of Infinity. Okay, now on to number systems, which may also be universal, to some degree or other, or even not universal at all. And this is important for what I will say at the end of this episode. I guess I should, strictly speaking, say these are numeral systems, not number systems. The distinction being a number is the abstract entity represented by the numeral. You can't write down a number, you can write down numerals. So whatever uh, 2 is, 2 can be represented by the number 2, or it can be re represented by 4 over 2, or 6 over 3, or 7 take away 5, and so on ad infinitum. You can write down these numerals representing that abstract thing that we call 2. But no one can utter 
the number two, we can only utter noises that represent the numeral, or the numeral representing the number. Anyway, the earliest numeral system was the tally mark system. Now, it is universal in the sense that any number out there can be represented by tally marks, but it's terribly cumbersome. Such a so-called unary system would need as many tally marks as there were objects that you were interested in counting or representing, let's say. Grouping tally marks is an improvement, but really not until something like the Roman numeral system do we have anything that genuinely improves efficiency. But even here, there is a largest symbol. The original symbol in Roman numerals for a thousand, which was written in this way, this CD thing, and in later times, or even alternatively, and what most people understand Roman numerals to represent a thousand being, is the letter M. Most people are familiar with M. So M, M is the biggest, or this CD thing is the biggest. It represents a thousand. But really, what you have with the Roman numeral system then is just a fancy, more complicated form of a tally system because once you get up to that largest possible number, you just write down repeated strings of M's. It's not really a huge improvement over the tally mark system, especially if you're doing complex maths. Of course, we, well, the Romans, could have kept adding new symbols for bigger numbers. But what this means, to quote David Deutsch in The Beginning of Infinity, is, quote, but the resulting system would still always have a highest valued symbol and hence would not be universal for doing arithmetic without tallying. The only way to emancipate arithmetic from tallying is with rules of universal reach, end quote. And that, of course, is the Indian Arabic number system we have in use today, the digits 0 to 9, where the value of a digit depends on its place in the number. So the invention of this system, and importantly the invention of the zero, was a jump to the universality of arithmetic. But David tells the story of how odd it has been that people have discovered universal things yet rarely noticed their significance. He illustrates this with the case of mathematician and mathematical genius, Archimedes, who invented his own system of numerals. Without recounting the entire tale here, suffice it to say he had a symbol M as well that represented a myriad, or a 10,000. And with this system, symbols written above the M, kind of like an exponent, could be used to multiply. And, this is the key for my purpose now, that system stopped with single exponents rather than allowing them to be stacked one upon another off into infinity. That would have been universal. You could just have stacks high above the M. But instead, that system that existed at the time of Archimedes arbitrarily stopped at a single tier. And even Archimedes, who tried to take that yet a step further, using exponents of a kind, roughly speaking, he used powers of a myriad myriad. So that's a big number, a myriad myriad, and powers of that to represent super large numbers. And that does allow some very large numbers to be represented. But he too, still arbitrarily, capped the largest number to be constructed from existing Greek numerals. So there was a largest possible number that could be written in that system of his. This is key. It could have been another higher form of universality without imposing this idea of only allowing the myriad myriad to be raised to the power of an existing Greek numeral. That rule prevented another jump to universality in his system. This will have an analogue I will come to later, but for now we need to consider perhaps one of the more recent and amazing jumps to universality, computational universality. 
So computational universality is largely to do with the universality of hardware, a device that can in principle do the work of any other device. Now, of course, the, the history of computation is a lecture series in itself. Names such as Jacquard and Babbage, Lovelace and Church all come into it. And it seems to be the case that Ada Lovelace appreciated computational universality first, namely the possibility of a device that could do not only arithmetic for you, but in David's words, do algebra, play chess, compose music, process images, and so on, end quote. For my purposes, I'm just going to mention two names here, and the first, of course, is Turing. Turing was the first to develop the proper mathematical theory of computation. In his theory, his description of the universal computer was such that it was a computer that could have computed anything that was computable. But in practice, the first computers were designed only for highly specific uses, like code breaking or solving the equations of projectile motion. Now, the instructions for a computer are written in what's called a programming language, and a programming language can be what's called Turing-complete or not. Turing-complete means that the language enables anything that a Turing machine can do, namely anything that a computer can do, can be written in that language. So you can give instructions to the computer such that the computer can do anything at all. Almost all modern computer languages are Turing-complete, but there are reasons people might utilise Turing-incomplete languages or non-Turing-complete languages. Now, why this might be is because you might want the computer to actually stop in certain cases, to halt, to not continue computing, because there are situations where a computer can end up in a loop and just keep on doing the same thing over and over again. And there are practical reasons why you want the computer perhaps sometimes to be in a loop, but... In other cases, you might not want it ever to be stuck in a loop. So if you don't want it to ever have the possibility of even being stuck in a loop, then you ensure that this is something it can't do, namely, can't be stuck in a loop, so therefore you don't want the language to be Turing complete. You want it to be Turing incomplete. I'll come back to that in just a second. The other name, the second name I should mention in this is, of course, David Deutsch, because quantum computation, which is where David applied the laws of physics, the quantum laws of physics, to the operation of a Turing computer, to Turing's theory about how computers work. He said, of course, that computers aren't abstract objects, they're physical objects. And you can have this thing called a quantum computer, which operating under the laws of quantum theory can take advantage of the fact that there exists multiple universes and so therefore you can use these multiple universes, use the resources in these multiple universes to perform computations. So then you can efficiently compute certain things that a Turing computer can't do efficiently. For example, a classical Turing computer, if it, if it tried to model, let's say, how the electrons move around an atom, that would be a kind of intractable problem for a classical computer to do. But with a quantum computer, you could actually simulate an atom. Because, it's, because an atom, of course, is a quantum object and a quantum computer would also be a quantum object. But for more on that, go to my multiverse series where I mentioned where I talk more about quantum computation. That too is a lecture series in itself. But suffice it to say, the quantum computer is another level of a jump to universality. But now, keeping in mind this distinction between Turing complete languages and Turing incomplete languages, which exist for good practical purposes. This is really the crescendo of 
the podcast, I suppose. It brings me to a very contemporary example of a jump to universality. The language that Bitcoin, the first of the cryptocurrencies that exists, that language that Bitcoin is written in is known as Bitcoin QT, also known as Bitcoin Core. It's based on the language C++. And if you don't know what I'm talking about here, C++ is just a programming language. And that language is, of course, Turing Complete. But the Bitcoin version of that language, Bitcoin Core, is not. And deliberately so, for good reason. It was designed so that the computers running the thing called the blockchain on which the Bitcoin is based could not possibly get stuck in infinite loops and thereby consume resources on the network, which would slow everything down. This helps reduce the possibility of so-called denial of service attacks or, to most people, a certain kind of hacking. Now, this protection mechanism has a flip side. It means that Bitcoin is literally only a cryptocurrency. It has been, for good reason, and yet also kind of arbitrarily, just like Archimedes' number system, kneecapped into having a finite repertoire of uses. And it is, in fact, used as a cryptocurrency only. What's that got to do with a jump to universality? Well, its competitor, to some extent, known as Ethereum. Ethereum is a cryptocurrency, but it's not only a cryptocurrency. Ethereum was deliberately designed as a blockchain which served as a platform. It uses the same ideas as Bitcoin, absolutely. It's a decentralized system, but it's a system not simply for allowing the possibility and the actuality of a cryptocurrency, but can also be used as a place to, for example, design apps, so-called dApps, decentralized apps. This is, as I have said in the language of the beginning of infinity, a jump to universality. This is down to the language it is written in, which is known as solidity. Now, to me, this step, this jump, seems rather amazing, although we're still very much in the infancy of Ethereum and what Ethereum is being used for. It has been used to make games and various other things. Uh, you can look around on the internet as to what Ethereum is actually used for. But it opens up the possibility to replace certain huge companies this idea that we were waiting for competitors to what seemed to be monopolies, they aren't monopolies, but what seemed to be monopolies could very much be here. The, the, the beginnings of the end of the so-called monopolies that Google has. Google is centralized. Twitter is centralized because Google exists on Google servers, on Google computers. Twitter exists on Twitter computers. Facebook exists on Facebook's computers. You get the point. Those companies own the computers and have every right to, for example, censor people, kick people off, remove them from their network. But a decentralized app like an Ethereum Twitter, which doesn't exist yet as far as I know, would exist not on a central computer, but on many computers, none of which is actually in control of the app itself. And with such a platform, any app that could be written anywhere else could be written on that platform. Now, Solidity, the language, has seemingly some issues to do with errors creeping into the Ethereum platform. But this may be the price to pay for a jump to universality. After all, problems are indeed inevitable. An error is the natural state of things. What Bitcoin gains in terms of resistance to a certain class of errors, it loses in reach. Ethereum, on the other hand, gains possibly infinite reach, but it means error correction is that much more important and errors will creep in. But it seems to me Ethereum is a real jump in technology akin to the creation of the internet itself. 
That is the jump to universality. And a jump, in a sense, to a kind of dispersed capitalism and freedom, a very libertarian kind of industry, and a way for people to interact where the arbitrary whims of a management cannot, or at least cannot with the ease we have seen recently, censor, restrict or control the flow of information, and so on. Now, that's a topic, I think, for a future episode. I'll end with the most important kind of universality that exists in the universe, the most significant jump to universality that the laws of physics have permitted. And that, of course, is the jump to explanatory universality. That is, people. People are a jump to universality. All other animals had a finite repertoire of behaviours and possibly, if they had any thoughts in their mind at all, those were finite too. But human beings, people, have an infinite repertoire of possible things that they can consider, ponder, simulate, represent in their minds. We are a jump to universality. We have infinite reach. Whatever can be thought of, can be thought of by us. Whatever phenomena exists out there in the universe can be modelled by our minds. We are the most significant jump to universality. And it is us that allows the creation of other kinds of jumps to universality, like Ethereum and computers. Until next time, bye-bye.